your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12 will be in verses 15 through 32 this morning as we consider together the only unforgivable sin. Kind of sounds like an oxymoron if, if you believe the gospel and yet God's word tells us there's one unforgivable sin and so we're going to look at that together uh, this morning. As we do, I'll read uh, verses 15 through 32, and so I invite you to look in your Bibles there in Matthew 12. We'll start reading in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, that is of the Pharisees' plans to kill him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the people spoke, so the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven." And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We've got two major sections that we're going to look at this morning, and as we do this, we'll see together that Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the forces of darkness. Jesus the King is infinitely more powerful than the forces of darkness. We've got these two major sections, the first of which is a picture of Jesus from the Old Testament in Isaiah 42, and then the kind of the second major section has to do with this, what Jesus calls an unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Well, if you read through the scripture, one thing you see over and over and over again is that it's God's nature to forgive. For instance, if you read Psalm 103, you see that God forgives all our iniquities, So God forgives all our sin, or if you get to 1 John 1, John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Or even if you think here in the Gospels to uh, the moment when Jesus will die on a cross, it's hard to think of a worse crime than murdering the Son of God. And yet as Jesus hangs on the cross, what does he pray for the people there? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, the nature of God is to forgive. So is it possible that there is an unforgivable sin? 
Is it possible that some of us have committed this sin? Well, let's work our way through this passage and see if we can find some answers. First, we're going to look at this picture of Jesus. We see this picture in verses 15 to 21, and by this time, Jesus has exposed the Pharisees enough. We've seen their abuse of power. We've seen their hypocrisy, and so by this time, they're, they're just out to get him. So Jesus, things are kind of boiling up. They're plotting to kill him now, and so he retreats a little so things can die down. As Jesus goes, the crowds go with him, and as they follow him, he heals them. Everyone who needs to be healed, he heals. Well, then Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, and this quotation is from one of four what we call the servant songs. They're about the servant who will come who will suffer for sin. And Isaiah 42 is the first of these four songs. Now, the, the most famous is one that we read fairly often, Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds, with his stripes, we are healed. That's the most famous, but there are four of them, and Isaiah 42 is the first of these. Well, Matthew is the gospel of Jesus the king, and the common picture of a king is that a king comes to crush his enemies. Well, if you read all the way to the end of the Bible, you know that that's going to happen. Jesus will come back and he will defeat all of his enemies, but the first time he comes, he comes to serve and to suffer. In fact, rather than crush his enemies, Jesus is crushed for his enemies. We see this first because Jesus is loved and chosen by God in verse 18. So if you were thinking of anyone in the world that you could really choose to make suffer, you'd probably think of an enemy, wouldn't you? I mean, someone you didn't particularly care for, maybe even someone you hated. Yet remarkably, Isaiah's song and Matthew both tell us that God the Father chooses God the Son to suffer because he loves him. We have this word that Jesus is beloved by God. This appears only three times in the book of Matthew, and every time it refers to Jesus. The first time we've already looked at, early in Matthew, when Jesus is being baptized, remember the Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus, and then a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son, the one in whom my soul is well pleased, or in whom I delight. A few chapters from here, in Matthew chapter 17, we have what we commonly call the transfiguration. This is when Jesus is on a mountain and Moses and Elijah appear. He appears white and bright and the, a few disciples are there and they see him. And again, a voice speaks and said, this is my beloved son, the one with whom my soul is well pleased. And we have it here again. This is a mark of God's special love. There are times where we see that, that God loves the world. God loves everyone, and yet he tells us, he uses this word three times, and every time it's to describe his relationship with his son. You see, God loves his son, and therefore he sends his son to suffer. Sounds crazy, but as we'll see in the end, it will all make sense. Jesus is loved and chosen by God, and Jesus is a humble king. We kind of picture uh, leaders as people out front, maybe people who speak, who take charge, or kind of steer things in a particular direction. But verse 19 tells us that Jesus is a different kind of leader. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't put up a fuss. He doesn't quarrel. He opposes evil, and he could coerce everyone to do his bidding, but he's not that kind of a king. In fact, he's a king who invites people to freely worship him. We are free to follow him, but he doesn't coerce us into following him, and this is because Jesus is a gentle king. Verse 20, well, if you drive anywhere around Charleston, even a few blocks from here, it won't be long before you see a marsh. And if you look across a marsh, 
You see some water, you might see some mud, depending how high the tide is or how the water is, but you'll also see uh, grass, marsh grass, and if you look among that grass, you see something standing up straighter than the grass, and what are those? Those are reeds. You can kind of see reeds everywhere you go. I mean, there are approximately millions, maybe billions of them around here. Well, Jesus speaks about a reed here. In ancient times, reeds are used for just kind of almost any everyday thing. They are used to make writing instruments. Sometimes they make a measuring rods out of them. Sometimes they might use them for utensils around the house. A reed is sort of the, uh, it's, it's like the uh, first century equivalent of a big pen. You can use it and you can throw it away and you can get, get another one. They're really cheap. They're really easy to find. Uh, they're everywhere just like they are around here. So if it wears out or breaks, it's, it's no big deal. Well, Jesus also refers to something else. He says, a smoldering wick he won't quench. First century wicks are made out of flax. And uh, the point is that when you see a wick smoking, that means it's burned down to the point where it's it's almost at its end. It's, It's almost done. It's almost useless. The lamp smokes a lot. I mean, a wick is kind of like a tissue. It's useful up to a point, but after it's used, no one really wants to use it again. It's, it's, It's not useful after that. It's time to move on. What Jesus says is that he builds his kingdom out of used reeds, big pens, and tissues, old candlesticks. He uses the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the mighty. You see, if you read through scripture, you see that God doesn't use the giant. He uses a little boy with five stones. On Mount Carmel, he doesn't use an army of 400 prophets. He uses one single prophet who's a little bit scared. In the book of Judges, God uses a single woman like Deborah. Or here in the Gospels, he uses a disciple who fails over and over and over again like Peter. You see, we're the kind of people who overlook the people that God uses, but Jesus isn't like the rest of us. He uses down and otters, those kind of on the outskirts of society, those who are easily overlooked. He loves them, he embraces them, he welcomes them. Now, you might be sitting here this morning, and you don't identify strongly with, I don't know, these people, these down-and-outers, but the truth is that no matter how successful you are, there will come a moment in life for every one of us when we feel like a failure. I mean, it doesn't matter how competent you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. You can succeed in one arena and fail in another. You can be succeeding at work and yet feel like you're failing at home. You might be succeeding in your relationships and yet kind of failing in your schoolwork. You might be like, I'm a rock star mom, but marriage is really hard. You see, to succeed in one area doesn't mean that you don't fail in others. And in those moments, remember this, Jesus is a gentle king who uses and welcomes down and outers. Jesus brings justice that gives hope. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus brings true justice all the way to victory. He will defeat all of his enemies and destroy evil itself. All injustice will be righted, and the justice that he brings isn't just a justice that crushes enemies. It brings hope. And the message of this good news isn't good news for a few people. What we see here is that in his name, all nations will hope. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah's preaching. And he's preaching to Jews, and yet seven centuries before Jesus comes, he tells us that when Jesus comes, he is a king who brings hope to all people. Remember we started and we said, how is it that God could love someone, and because he loves that person, his son send him to suffer? Well, Jesus doesn't walk alone. Verse 18 tells us that God sends 
a special measure of the Spirit of God on his Son. You see, God gives his Spirit to all people who put, his, put their faith in him, and yet there are times when he gives a special measure, a special empowering of the Spirit of God to particular people. So, for instance, you see this at various times throughout Scripture. One of the most famous or one of the most well-known is is the ministry of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. We see those men do more powerful miracles than we see happening throughout Scripture or maybe in the life of Moses. But we see this more clearly in the life of Christ than in anyone else. The Spirit enables and empowers Jesus' ministry. You see, the Father gives to his Son, he entrusts his Son with the most remarkable and the most important mission in the history of the world, the redemption of sinners. In Matthew 21, Jesus talks about this, and he tells us a story to try to help us understand. There's a, there's a farmer, and he's sort of, he kind of owned land, and it's like kind of a sharecropping type relationship. There are tenant, tenants on this land, and they rent land from the farmer, and, and the, their, their obligation is to pay to the farmer a portion of their crops. Well, they keep failing to pay the landowner. And so the landowner sends messengers, and he says, hey, you guys owe me. And, and they don't listen to him. And then at the end, he says, you know what? If they won't listen to my servants, these messengers I sent, surely they will listen to my son. And he sends his son. And what do they do to the son? They kill the son when he gets there. It's a picture of what we see in Scripture, which is God the Father sending messengers to his people, saying, repent, follow me, repent. And over and over, he sends these prophets, these servants, these messengers, and they fail to listen to him. And so in the last days, he sends his son. And not only do they not listen to his son, they kill the Son. You see, this is the most essential moment in history. And the Father sends his most loved Son to carry out his most important mission, the mission of God's redeeming love for sinners. This mission will lead to suffering for the Son, but it will lead to deliverance for his people. On the day of the cross, Jesus is lifted up, but he's not lifted up to be exalted. He's lifted up to die, to hang there in shame. And yet his shame leads to another lifting up that Philippians 2 tells us at his name. He will be highly exalted because he humbled himself. It's because he hung on the cross that one day he will be high and lifted up and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, his suffering leads to his glory. His shame leads to the moment when every knee will bow and every eye will see that Jesus is the King. Jesus died so that we might have life. The Son suffered so that we would not. Jesus not only suffered, he also conquered death and all suffering through his resurrection. And because of this, we have the promise of life and victory through him. We live in this world, and like God's Son, like his most beloved Son, our lives are often filled with suffering. But if we faithfully follow Jesus In the life of suffering, on the other side, is a life of victory and joy and peace. The victory that he won becomes ours too. So the question for us is today, will we turn from our sin and trust to Jesus? And if you're here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust him? So there's this beautiful picture of Jesus, the suffering Savior. But now we have to deal with this serious accusation that the Pharisees make against him, this question of unforgivable sin in verses 22 to 32. Well, by this time, Jesus has done enough miracles that the Pharisees can't really deny his power. In other words, everyone's seen it happen, so they can't deny that this is happening. But 
they can make an accusation about where he gets his power from, and that's what they do in verse 24. It's only by Beelzebul, this, this name for Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And then Jesus responds to this accusation, as he so often does, with uh, two illustrations. In 1858, state of Illinois, a, a Republican is running for Senate. A man, little-known man at the time, but well-known now by the name of Abraham Lincoln. And that day, he gives a, a fairly famous speech, as famous in retrospect, and he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, that's one of Lincoln's most famous lines, but it actually didn't belong to Abraham Lincoln. He borrowed it. Jesus is the first one to speak this line. And he speaks about a divided kingdom in verses 25 to 27. His basic point is this. If Jesus is, is casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan is sort of fighting himself. And if Satan boxes himself or fights himself, Satan it's a lose-lose. You can't win in this, in this case. So in verse 26, Jesus says, how, if he's fighting himself, can his kingdom stand? And then he uses a second illustration. He talks in verse 29 about what he calls binding uh, the strong man. Now, hopefully this isn't the way you put bread on the table, but imagine that you're, uh, you make your, your living by breaking and entering homes. All right, and you're kind of you're marking homes, you know, throughout a neighborhood. And then there's one particular home, and you find out that in this home, uh, there lives a Navy SEAL. You know that he's particularly amped up. He's always on the alert. He's special ops. He can pretty much kill anyone with two fingers, but he sleeps also with a gun under his pillow. Well, well how do you enter that guy's house? You knock, and you walk in through the front door in daylight, and you ask if you can come in, right? Like, you, you don't go into his house, or maybe, I don't know if you have access to his food, you drug his food and put him to sleep first. I mean, you're not going into his house unless he's already taken care of. And, and that's Jesus' point here, is that you don't enter the strong man's house until you first can overpower or make sure the strong man is taken care of. So what does this mean? It means that Satan is way more powerful than we are. Satan is the strong man. When it comes to our picture of the demon world, we kind of have two major tendencies. One of these is that we tend to minimize the presence and power of the spirit world in our world today. We're, we're, we're rationalists. We kind of go by what we can see, what we can reason through, what we can sense with our five senses. And yet, God's word tells us that we battle against principalities and powers, the forces of darkness that are present and active in this world. Satan, like a roaring lion, goes around looking for people to devour. Well, the second major kind of tendency we have in terms of dealing with demons is that we almost kind of, we, we sort of mock them to kind of joke them away. I mean, there are entire movie genres uh, built around the idea that Satan is a joke. Or if you listen, I don't know, ESPN, the news, or whatever, you hear people talking about, we exercise as demons. And by that, they just mean like they, they got over their fears or they were able to kind of move on. Well, these are the ways we tend to deal with these things. We either minimize them or kind of joke about them, but look at how this contrasts with Jesus' treatment of Satan. Jesus, the all-powerful creator who needs to fear no one, calls Satan a king with a kingdom and a strong man, who, and you can't enter his house. I mean, who are we to think that we are immune to the attacks of Satan? I mean, Satan is no match for Jesus, but he loves to feast on unsuspecting prey. If you watch any sort of animal planet, any sort of show, the lions look for the weak ones at the back of the pack, the ones who are unaware, the, the wildebeest kind of hanging back. And Satan loves to seek out people who are unaware. 
people who are vulnerable, and people who aren't suspecting that they could be attacked. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the reality and power of Satan and his armies to wreck us spiritually, to take our lives and make them a complete and utter disaster, to take churches and and rip them apart by the seams. Satan takes a small matter and he invests it with great energy. I mean, a simple conversation between two people becomes something that splits a church apart, church apart at the seams. A new person at work becomes a series of conversations that kind of escalates into flirtation, and then it becomes a full-blown affair. Race relations between people who have a lot in common become invested with energy, and suddenly they're filled with arrogance and obstinacy. And communities rip apart at the seams. A new phone can lead down a path to sexual addiction, or a social media account can lead to depression, fear, and anxiety as we seek to compare our lives with everyone around us. Those things in and of themselves, maybe they lead us down that path, but brothers and sisters, we live in a world where Satan and his armies are investing those things with spiritual energy, with spiritual power. Satan is way more powerful than we are. And yet the picture here Jesus gives us is that Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan. Jesus is able to wreck Satan's house because he's more powerful than Satan. Verse 28, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. And how does this kingdom manifest itself? Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man? Satan is powerful. And no mere human being can enter his territory and thoroughly plunder his house unless someone else enters the house first and binds the strong man. Unless someone takes care of the strong man for us. You see, in our relationship with Satan, Scripture gives us this picture. Satan binds us. He enslaves us to sin. And he will bind all of us in death. And he's got a bunch of people who help him. Armies. But if he can be subdued, then he can be defeated. Satan com- Jesus comes into Satan king- Satan's kingdom, directly challenges his authority, and casts out demons. You see, the lordship of Christ is a direct challenge to the lordship of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. Jesus' mission will result in the redemption of God's people, our deliverance from sin, but he also delivers us from the power of the devil. God's word teaches us that this is one of the functions of his mission. 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. One one important part of Jesus' mission is our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1, verse 13. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So there is a king, there is a domain, there is a power present in this world. And one reason Jesus comes is to destroy this kingdom and to deliver us to his kingdom. Jesus doesn't come and sort of negotiate with Satan. He doesn't come and sort of establish a truce with him. He comes and utterly annihilates him. Jesus enters Satan's house and binds him. He comes to destroy the one who enslaves us. Satan is powerful, but Jesus is the ultimate champion. This means that our fight, our fight against sin is real. We feel its presence in our lives, but it is already won. What Genesis 3 says is that the serpent 
will bite his heel, and yet he will crush the serpent's head. That day has come. If you find yourself bound in the power of sin over and over and over again, you're trusting Jesus, but man, you still fight the presence and power of sin in your life. Then consider this truth, that Jesus has crushed Satan. He has bound the strong man. And one day he will come back and utterly cast him into the lake of fire. He will destroy him forever. But he has delivered us today from the presence, not from the presence, from the power of sin in our lives. That's what we see in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, Paul says, you are dead to sin and alive to God. This is true, yet you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Live there, believe by faith. You don't have to sin. Consider yourself alive to God, dead to sin through Jesus. I mean, how does this change the way we, we battle sin in our lives? How does this bat change the way we battle depression, anxiety? I mean, that battle is real. It's present. It's here. We recognize that Satan is investing this struggle with particular energy. But how does the truth that Jesus has bound the strong man inform our battle with depression? The battle's still real. The battle's still tough. It's still hard. And yet Jesus has given us the victory through his resurrection. Or how about our battles with, with lust? Man, some days that seems like something we're just chained to and we can't get free of. I mean, normal sexual desire can become inflamed, become impassioned, become energized by forces of darkness. But how would it change the way we view that temptation if we recognize that Jesus has already dealt a death blow to that sin? Satan's house is wrecked. It is empty. The strong man is bound. He has no true power. Yet, we still haven't answered the question. Is there a sin that God won't forgive? Well, if you look at verse 31, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is this unpardonable sin, and how in the world do we know if we've committed it? Well, we can't understand this without understanding the context. And first, we've got, got to look at the historical context here, because Jesus uses a phrase that the Pharisees are quite familiar with, this idea of blaspheming God. In fact, their own tradition states this, quote, the Holy One, blessed be He, pardons everything else, but on profaning of the name He takes vengeance immediately. So the Pharisees themselves say, God will forgive anything but blasphemy against His name. So Jesus takes this familiar statement and He actually contradicts it. So what what they say is God won't forgive any blasphemy, but what Jesus says is that God will forgive even the sin of blasphemy. So his forgiveness is wider than the Pharisees. So that's a historical context, but there's also a scriptural context here. So Jesus is casting out demons, and, and as Isaiah tells us, he does this because the presence of the power of the Spirit of God is manifest his life in a particularly powerful way. So he's casting out demons by the power of the Spirit, and these men are accusing him by doing it by the power of Satan. Well, in this context, the blasphemy against the Spirit is a refusal to repent, a refusal to recognize the person and work of Jesus. So is there an unforgivable sin? 
Well, clearly the answer is yes, but the question is, what is it? And this sin is a failure to acknowledge the lordship of Christ and believe upon him alone for salvation. A failure to recognize the work of Christ, a failure to turn to him in repentance and faith, will damn your soul eternally. You see, rejecting Jesus is the only unforgivable sin. They kind of back this up a step because, I mean, it's hard. He calls this this blasphemy of the Spirit. Think for a moment. How many examples in Scripture do we have of someone coming to Jesus, coming to God, repenting of sin, asking forgiveness, crying out in faith, and God rejecting that person? How many can you think of? None. Zero. That's because there aren't any. There's no one who comes to God asking for mercy who God sends away. I mean, think about this. Peter himself not only denies Jesus, but God's word tells us, denies him with a what? With a curse. He himself profanes the name of his Savior in this moment, and yet he found mercy and grace in turning to Jesus. There's a question that this passage raises that isn't that helpful. And the question is, not everyone has this, but particularly people who kind of, I don't know, agonize and to be introspective. And this is, have I maybe committed the unforgivable sin? How do I know if I've committed a sin that God won't forgive? Well, a more helpful question is this, have I turned from my sin and trusted Jesus? Am I trusting Jesus? You see, the focus of this passage is not whether on we've kind of subconsciously or unconsciously committed a sin that that God can't forgive. Because there's no sin that God won't forgive through the blood of Jesus. The only unforgivable sin is a failure to come to Jesus for mercy. The question for us is, are we submitting to the lordship of Christ and trusting him alone for salvation? God won't forgive any sin apart from Jesus, but he will forgive all sin through Jesus. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. If you're here this morning, you haven't come to God through faith, I'll give you a moment to talk to God in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.